0: Imagine for a moment that you were to receive notification from an attorney that you have been set to inherit a plot of land right in the heart of the mountains here in Washington, like a nice big plot of land right here in in Washington state. uh, And you you inherited this from a distant relative that, you know, maybe you'd heard of, but you'd never really known. And, you know, you verify, first of all, I hope anyway, that it's legitimate, that it's not just like some kind of scam. Oh, all you have to do is pay $40,000 and send it to Nigeria. And, you know, it's all yours. Uh, No, so you, you, you verify that it's a legitimate deal, that it's a legitimate inheritance, and you look up where this plot of land is on a map, and you notice, wow there's even this nice, beautiful stream flowing right through the middle of your land. And immediately, you know, you're, you've got all these dreams. Of what are you going to do with this land? You know, you don't want to just sell it. You, don't, you know, it's, it's in a beautiful place. It's a great place to have retreats. It's a beautiful place to go camping. You know, so you start dreaming about, you know, the cabin that you might build there or, you know, the clear view of the stars that you'll be able to get because there's no light pollution. But when you finally make it out to see that land, for yourself, what you find is that it's covered in trash. There's just a layer of trash everywhere you look. There are cans, there are uh, ca- you know candy wrappers, there are dirty diapers. I mean, you name it, it's out there and it's all over the place, all over your land. and it's obvious that this junk, this trash, has been there for some time. But worst of all, worst of all is that somebody, has apparently dumped trash into that beautiful stream that, uh, that's flowing right through your property. And so you set your stuff down, put your, take your backpack off, set your stuff down, and you start cleaning up that, mu- that mess. And after several hours of working really hard to get this mess cleaned up, you can just barely start to notice that it's making any difference at all. It hasn't been easy, obviously, but you've been making progress, and you can see that you've been making a little bit of progress, but, you know, it's it's been several hours, and you're exhausted. Uh, it's the end of the day, and so your, your back is... is killing you after being you know, stooped over all day. And so you realize that you're going to have to return every day to get this place truly cleaned up. And so you head back home for the evening. But upon arriving back at your property the next day, you see that it's just as dirty, just as filthy, just as disgusting as it was the day before. In fact, it might even have more trash than it had the day before. And you think for a moment, what is going on here? Who would do this kind of thing to me? Who would put all this trash here after I you know, spent all this work yesterday cleaning up all this trash? And then you realize, you know, oh, there, there's nobody for miles. Nobody came out here, and you know, just decided to dump their stuff here. And so, what you do is, you know, you, you realize there's nobody around. That somebody didn't do this, but that somehow it's coming in. And so, you do the next logical thing: you follow the stream upstream to the source of this garbage to see what's bringing it all in. And sure enough, as you get not too far away from your property, you see that there's this huge garbage dump just right out there in the middle of nowhere. There's this huge Pile of trash. And the junk on your property, the the, the trash that you just spent the day before cleaning up, it's been carried downhill, downwind, downstream, and the rest is, is history. That's how it all got there. So by cleaning out some junk the day before, all you really did was create more places for more trash to settle in today. So you have two options. First of all, you could just resolve to return every day to your plot of land. And resolve that every day you'll return and you'll clean it up knowing that the next day it's going to be back. You could do that. That would be a lot of work. I wouldn't recommend it. But you could do that. Or secondly, you could address the problem by going to the source of the garbage and dealing with what's there. The source of all this trash on your property. Taking it away at the source instead of at your property. Now biblically speaking, your heart is the source from which your spiritual life and all of your life flows. Sadly, however, we spend a lot of time, we, we spend a lot of energy, we even spend a lot of money uh, dealing with the junk in our lives that's floated downstream, rather than going to the source and really deal, dealing with the source of the issue, dealing with the real junk we face in life. In his letter to the Romans, Paul spent eight chapters uh, giving a theological discourse on all these theological subjects. God, salvation, the way that God's salvation changes us down to our very identity. Uh, He spends, after that, uh, chapters 9 through 11, talking about Israel and how their history was an illustration of the things that he established in the first eight chapters. So really what you would say is that chapters 9 through 11 are parenthetical. It's an illustration of everything that he's already established in the first eight chapters. And then we come to chapter 12, where we're told how all All of these great doctrines that were established in chapters 1 through 8 should affect our lives. In fact, uh, one of my seminary professors, Barry Leventhal, said this is the way that you should read this. Start with the last verse of chapter 8 and then read into chapter 12. So uh, let me start by reading the end of chapter 8 and then we'll we'll go on into chapter 12. Uh, Starting with chapter 8, verse 38. Verse 38. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we skip right to chapter 12, verse 1, where we read, therefore I urge you, brethren, continual." It's a continuum, therefore, I urge you brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the good will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect for through for through the grace of Given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. This is how we should respond in light of that glorious truth at the end of chapter 8 and the glorious truths of the doctrines that were built in chapters 1 to 8. And starting with uh, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, Paul starts a discourse on what we would call practical theology, how it affects our lives. He's talking about how our view of God, our view of salvation, our view of ourselves in light of our salvation, how all those things should affect our lives, how they should change our lives. And what he does here. In this one passage, verses one to three, he gives us three imperative commands, three things, three instructions that he wants his audience to follow. But when you see an imperative command, there's something you have to remember. When you see an imperative command, it's something that's optional. It's something that the person has to choose to do. He doesn't say, therefore, you will be. He says, therefore, do this, not therefore, you're going to do this. See the difference? There's a huge difference. An imperative command means that there is a choice whether or not a person chooses to do it. Unbelievers, by the way, don't have the choice to do the things that Paul's instructing in these chapters. Why? Because they reject the doctrines that we find in chapters 1 through 8. They don't have the choice because all an unbeliever can do is sin. That's all an unbeliever can do. But Paul's telling uh, those of us who have received God's grace, those of us who have accepted and believe the doctrines that are established in uh, chapters 1 through 8, he's telling us uh, to do three things in light of God's saving grace. The first is to present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice to God. You cannot worship without doing this. This is what worship is presenting yourself as an offering to God, a holy sacrifice to God. Number two, he says, rather than being conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You should be noticeably different. And it starts in your mind, the way you think, thinking differently because of the change of identity that we have in Christ Jesus. Number three, he says, have a correct perception of yourself. Don't think you're any bigger. Don't think you're any better than you really are. And that's the reason, by the way, that you would submit yourself to doing these, two, uh, these previous two things, but also this third thing. Let God be God, and you be you. And let God be in charge of what God's in charge of, and you just be obedient to what God has commanded you to do. The reality is that a lot of people, a lot of people who claim to be Christians, maybe they'll do one of these things, Maybe they won't do any of these three things. Maybe the people who won't do any of these three things, and maybe they're really saved and so it is by choice, or maybe, maybe it's because they're still slaves to the power of sin. Paul established, by the way, that we are not slaves to sin. He says, therefore, therefore present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to righteousness. The first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Back to Nehemiah now dealt with the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And of course, what we saw is that this is uh, an illustration, this is a lesson in defending against and closing off the opportunities that the enemy has to strike at us, whether that be through uh, outward practices or inward attitudes. But starting with the eighth chapter, we, uh, we kind of shifted gears uh, as we've begun to look at the need to change inwardly as well as outwardly. We've seen the people thirsting for the word of God, and their response was outward obedience. Uh, but last week, we saw that it also involved an internal change of heart, a deep and sincere repentance. And so we're going to see the fruit of that this week. So I want you to see this up front, that there's, there's a definite sequence here. It starts with studying God's word, which we saw back in chapter 8, to confession and repentance, which we saw last week, to what we see this week, and that is a transformed way of of living. This week we see that the people are going to resolve to do these three things that Paul instructed his audience to do. How that plays out is going to vary from person to person. How a person uh, you know, it, it, uh, submits themselves as a living sacrifice is going to vary from person to person. But the person who belongs to God must change. And as we'll see today, that change, that transformation, if you will, is the only legitimate, tangible evidence that exists that we are God's people. The change, this transformation that Nehemiah records, actually starts with the final verse of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 38 of Nehemiah says Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So he says, because of all this, because of all what? Because of all that we saw in chapter 9, the confession, the repentance, the praise that we saw last week, which led up to this moment. So what Nehemiah is doing here is he's really articulating the people's recognized need to change. To be transformed in the way that they live. To transform their attitudes. And to make sure that these things aren't just things that are on the surface, but that these things stick beyond their generation. We saw the mistake that Joshua made. And that after his generation, there was just chaos. There was anarchy. uh, Because everybody was just living however they wanted to live. But here these people are going to restore uh, and or strengthen their commitment to living for the glory of God. So what follows, uh, after, you know, as we turn to chapter 10, what follows is a really lengthy list of names that are really, really hard to pronounce. <laughs> and I have no intention or interest in going through these names uh, individually. You know, as you guys know, I, I leave that to Kurt. But to summarize, what we see is that Nehemiah signs this document. It's a covenant that the people are signing with God. It's it's an agreement. It's like a contract that they're signing with God. So Nehemiah signs first, then a group of priests who are followed by some other Levites who are joining in what's really got to be seen as a national revival. And that's followed by the names of the priests who serve in the temple. Uh, So there you go. Now we've gone all the way up to uh, verse 28, (laughs) just summarizing up to verse 28. But what a shame it would be if only... Uh, the leaders of a nation committed themselves to living for the Lord and nobody else, if it was just the leaders. I mean, that would be the shortest-lived revival and the shortest-lived governing body in history. So when we get down to verses 28 and 29, we see that the leaders are joined by just the common people, the people who aren't, uh, don't fit into these other categories that we talked about. Uh, so we read in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 to 29. Now the rest of the people, the priests the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. All those who had knowledge and understanding. Remember, that's who was listening to the word of God being preached back in chapter 8. All those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. And so what we see here is that these people are signing this covenant, this agreement. They're signing their names in this covenant to change their ways, to be visually, outwardly transformed. Rather than living uh, you know, for themselves and you know, by whatever rules and regulations they create for themselves, you know, that, that's anarchy, that's what we saw back in the book of Judges. Instead of living that way, they devote themselves to becoming living sacrifices who are separate from the world, changed, transformed, rather than being conformed to the ways of the world. Why would they do this? Why would they sign this covenant? Why would they take this promise, this oath, to change their ways? It's because they've observed that third thing that Paul said to do. They've got a correct perception of themselves. They don't think any better of themselves than they are. They don't think any bigger of themselves than they really are. They have a correct perception of themselves. They aren't seeing themselves as people who are, oh, you know, pretty good, you know, for the most part. You know, yeah, they mess up once in a while, but who doesn't? They don't take that attitude. And it's really easy to take that attitude where, well, you know, yeah, I sinned, but everybody (laughs) sins, so, you know, it's not that big of a deal. They're not seeing themselves that way. These people are seeing themselves as fallible sinners in the presence of a holy God. And they're trying to please, they're trying to please this this righteous and holy God with their lives, and that requires that they examine their lives, that that they pick up the trash. They have to identify it first. Paul said this to the church in Corinth, which, by the way, man, if you want to see a, a, a study study a book that looks so much like the American church, the church in Corinth was so so much like the American church, if I do say so. Paul said this, Second uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen verse five. He said, "Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you?" Unless, indeed, you fail the test, how incredibly, desperately, our country needs this verse to be preached regularly and thoroughly. If you ask the average churchgoer in our country, how do you know that you're saved? You know what their answer typically is? I said a prayer once. You know, I I, I invited Jesus into my heart. Uh, you know, something like that. I said the sinner's prayer. I challenge you to find a precedent for these types of answers in Scripture. It is not there. Nobody is saved by a prayer. How do you know that you're saved? It has nothing to do with whether you said the sinner's prayer. It has nothing to do with that at all. There is no prayer to receive Jesus. And the fact that somebody says a prayer, asking Jesus into their heart, is no guarantee that Jesus is actually going to come into their heart. Because it's not about the prayer. No, Paul says, test yourselves. Examine yourselves. He's saying that there should be a visual, definitive difference in your life if you belong to Jesus and if he is in you. And if a person doesn't see, if they examine themselves and they don't see any evidence, guess what? Maybe, I I hope not, but maybe they fail the test. And maybe Jesus isn't really in them. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. He said, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce Good Fruit, but something tells me here he 's not talking about agriculture and he 's not really talking about fruit uh, no he 's talking about what we are doing, the evidence in our lives that we 're living for the glory of God alone rather than living for our own glory. Now we actually have a plum tree out here. Uh, if you guys know where our basketball hoop is out here in our driveway, there are three plum trees in a row there. And two of them are bad, and one are, or two of them are good, and one of them is bad. Actually, two years ago, I tried one of the plums from that uh, that diseased tree. It's got some kind of disease, and there's about half of it still standing there. And uh, so two years ago, I tried one of the plums that came off of that bad tree. And man, it was disgusting. Uh, last year, our, our neighbor, Alex, who lives back here, he came over and uh, when he saw the tree, the, bad, the uh, bad tree, he tried to pick some of the fruit off of this tree. He picked a plum off and put it in his mouth before uh, I had a chance to warn him that it was going to taste really bad. And what do you think he did? He spit it right back out. This is disgusting. This doesn't taste like a plum. This tastes like mush or, or who knows what. It, it, bad tree, bad fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. What else? would you expect from a sick and dying bad tree? But then we have two good trees that are right next to the bad tree, and the good trees produce good fruit. That stuff is delicious. That stuff is really good fruit. I don't need to be cautious when I pick fruit off of those two trees because I know that any fruit that comes off of those two trees is not only edible, but man, it's, it's really good. Why? Because they're good trees. And so they produce nothing but good fruit. And so the same thing applies to what Jesus is saying here. Examine yourselves. Look at the fruit in your lives. Is there evidence of Jesus in your life? Are your values changing to God's values? What other types of good works might I be talking about? What about, uh, yeah, good works. Now, I don't want to be coming across here as a legalist, I'm not saying that we are saved by good works. We are not saved by good works. And if that's the case, man, every single one of us is doomed because there's been bad fruit at some point or another in every person's life. I'm saying that good works flow from a legitimate faith, and those good works are evidence of our salvation. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, you know, I'm not saying, by the way, uh, that we can all be perfect now that we are in Jesus. I'm not saying that uh, any one of us uh, is perfect. We will stumble, and we will stumble over And over and over and over again. You know, this week, uh, earlier this week, we had a bird that kept flying into this window back here. I'm I'm sitting in there trying to write this sermon, and there's this bird that sees his reflection in the window, and he keeps smashing into the window. I've seen birds do this before. Uh, When we were living in North Carolina, we had this bird that did that for months uh, but anyway, uh, thankfully he's he's not out there uh, right now. But it, it's kind of the same concept, doing the same thing over and over and over. Or maybe kind of like how um, any of you guys watch Looney Tunes, you know, growing up. Uh, that was always one of my favorite cartoons. I loved uh, Wile E. Coyote and the, and the Roadrunner. Kind of like how, you know, um, the Roadrunner would reach the end of a cliff and, uh, you know, he'd take the, the warning, you know, danger cliff sign off and he'd paint a beautiful sunset with a road leading into it or something and, you know, the Roadrunner would go behind the sign and Wile E. Coyote would go right through the sign and off the edge of the cliff. And how many times did Wile E. Coyote actually do that? I don't. He did it like every episode, so he never ever learned. He, he kept making the same mistakes, and the truth is, you and I are prone to doing the same thing with sin in our lives. But make no mistake about it. You cannot, it, it, it's impossible, to love sin and to also love righteousness. You cannot love righteousness and unrighteousness you will love one and hate the other people who love unrighteousness they hate righteousness people who love righteousness are necessarily going to hate unrighteousness there is no way to love both every single day every moment of every day we have to make the choice between worshiping god or worshiping the false gods that are contending with each other and with jehovah and with god the real god for our hearts attention and it's affection. Choosing to worship false gods. What's that called? Anybody? Idolatry. That's the single greatest cause of sin in our lives. Every time we sin, it's because we are choosing to worship an idol rather than worshiping God. See, it's it's easy to do all of this stuff just on the surface and to never let it sink in any deeper than that, you know, just to keep it at a, at a surface level so that it, it's kind of like a facade. But if we belong to God, and if Jesus is in us, and if we want to make sure that our lives are pleasing to God, it starts by examining ourselves and looking for evidence, good fruit, to make sure that we pass the test. It means turning our hearts away from the idols in our lives, in our hearts, the trash that's filling our land and the things that are waging war for our hearts. And that's what the people are doing here in the book of Nehemiah. And actually what we see here is, overall to summarize, and, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, but they see six things that are going to need to change if they're going to stay on this path of righteousness. Six, six things are going to be uh, changed here. And by the way, remember that six is the number in the Bible that represents the sinfulness of man. God uh, is represented by seven. Man falls short of God. Man is six. So let's summarize these six things very briefly. First of all, they commit to avoiding the unequal yoke. Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 30. We read, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now there are two very, very good reasons that they would commit to this oath or, or take this vow or make, make this covenant. First of all, on a theological level, God told them, he instructed them not to marry into uh, the families or the, the people of the land. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he say, don't marry with the nations that are surrounding you in this land? It's because the people of the land worshipped false gods, and God is extremely aware of just how easily Our hearts are led away from him, led into idolatry. The second reason, uh, more practical reason, um, that they vowed to do this is that marrying somebody who doesn't love the Lord is like a ticking time bomb because what you'll have unquestionably, every time, what you'll have is two opposing value systems. You'll have the world's value system and you'll have God's value system living under one roof. And two diametrically opposite value systems cannot live under the same roof for long. Either there's going to be a war or there's going to be a compromise, a sellout. And man, where there is compromise, where there is a selling out in our value system, there is... You guessed it, idolatry. There's idolatry. Trust me, I, I've seen this happen to some of my, my best friends. I saw this happen to a guy that I've been friends with since first grade. It, it happens. It's a ticking time bomb to marry into a different value system. Secondly, they observe, uh, they vow to observe the seventh day and the seventh year. Nehemiah 10.31 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, the seventh day and the seventh year, actually, are both symbolic of rest and renewal and our need for rest and renewal. It's recognizing our occasional need to slow down and be still in the presence of God. See, if you don't willfully rest, you're going to rest unwillfully. If it's not with your will, you will rest against your will because our bodies can't go without rest uh, too long. God designed our bodies to need rest, and that's the purpose of observing the Sabbath day, just to find a day to be still, to rest, and to be in the presence of God. And just like the Sabbath day comes every seven days, the Sabbath year comes every seven years. God had instructed the Israelites in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 18 to 21. He said this, he said, you shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will produce, will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we don't sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it will bring forth the crop for three years. So see, the Sabbath year is about remembering that God can make something happen even when it seems impossible. They're saying, you know, how are we going to eat if we don't sow anything in the seventh year? If we don't work the seventh year, how are we going to have anything to eat? And God's saying, Just trust me. It it, it defies the laws of nature, but just trust me and I will provide for you because God can do, uh, he can provide, even when it seems completely impossible. Third, the people vow to provide for the duties in the temple. We read in verses 32 and 33, we also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, so the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. See, the, purpose of the one of the purposes of the temple, at least, was shed blood, sacrifice. And the purpose of the, the shed blood in the temple, the sacrifice in the temple, was to remind people, of the incredibly steep cost of redemption and atonement with God. Where blood is shed, there is death. And death is the wage of sin. It's the penalty of sin. The sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law, the purpose of it was to remind people that reconciliation with God is not as simple as just saying, okay, God, I'm sorry, you know, and then go back to doing the same thing. It's to remind people that there is a steep cost, that reconciliation with God is not free. And of course, this was a foreshadowing of Christ's death, uh, which involved the shedding of his own blood for us. Uh, That was the cost of our redemption. These people realized that fallen and corrupt people need to be reminded not only that they are fallen and corrupt, but also of the cost of atonement, the penalty uh, that, that's, that our sin requires. And they realized that it was important to have a central location for corporate worship and service. Fourth, the people committed to uh, additional provisions for the temple, from the first fruits to the firstborn. In verses 34 to 36, we read, likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people so that they might bring it to the house of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law and that they might bring the first fruits. Of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. Now, the implication, of course, of bringing in the first fruits, firstborn, first whatever—it's uh, all the same. It's it's an it's an intentional. Uh, implicit recognition that God owns it all, that it's all his. And so we give it back to him as a recognition of that and implicitly recognizes what Paul wrote. He said, you are not your own. That stuff that, you know, the best stuff that grew, yeah, you you know, I grew that. God grew that. See, the world has an opposite value system, by the way. They'll say stuff like, uh, you are your own. You are your own, in fact, nobody can tell you what you have to do with your body. By the way, nobody really believes that, Uh, but that's the world's value system. Nobody can tell you what to do with your body, but the Bible teaches us that we don't own anything, that none of it is ultimately ours. God might entrust us with it for a season, or maybe a little bit longer than a season, maybe for a lifetime, but it's still his. We don't even own ourselves. We don't even own ourselves. We belong to God. Fifth, they commit to the tithe. We read in verses 37 to 39, uh, the first half of, of 39. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Now this issue of of the tithe is something that confuses a lot of Christians. But actually, the New Testament doesn't have a tithe. Notice, uh, of all these things that are being brought as part of the tithe, where's money? It's not in there. They're bringing all these other things, new wine, oil, uh, dough, uh, fruit from their trees, you know, produce. They're bringing all these things that they fill the storehouse up. They don't fill the storehouse up with money. But that's not what a lot of churches teach these days. So the, the tithe was part of the law of Moses, and it applied only to Israel. The principle for giving in the New Testament is that we are to give a portion of our wealth uh, back to the Lord, but that we have the freedom to determine exactly what that portion is. Paul said this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. He said, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper or as he has been blessed, so that no collections be made when I come. See, Paul didn't want to be there to influence their giving. So collect it before I come, is what Paul's saying, and be ready uh, when I'm there, so that there's not this pressure of, oh, Paul's here. I guess I better dig a little deeper. That's not what Paul wanted their motivation to be. See, God, uh, he's not concerned with how much a person gives. He's not. He doesn't care if it's 10%. He doesn't care if you do a reverse tithe and keep 10% and give 90%. That's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned with the attitude. He's concerned with the heart of the giver, or in some cases, the, the heart of the person who doesn't give at all, or the person who gives out of a sense of uh, begrudgment, you know, hesitation. They don't want to give. You know, This is mine, but... <laughs> Whatever I'll you know I'll give God ten percent because you know I, if I can tip a waiter I can I can tip God you know that, that that's the, not the type of heart that pleases God in his second letter to the Corinthians uh, he he instructed them uh, Paul instructed them each mu- each one must do just as he purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver in Second Corinthians chapter nine verse seven this is the means that God has ordained that the New Testament church would be Supported. We don't give because uh, we want to be given, we want God to give us even more so that we can give more. I've been in churches where. <laughs> You remember that service? I'm asking my wife. Uh, yeah, we were at a service where that was, uh, that was the, the whole point. We, we give so that we can get, so that we can give, so that we can get, was, was what they kept teaching. And I thought, wow, that is not what the Bible teaches at all. So we don't give so that we can get. We don't give so that God will uh, give us more favor and bless us in uh, maybe non-material ways. And we certainly don't give because it's necessary for us to give to be forgiven. That, that is not how it works. We give simply because we're grateful for what God has blessed us with, what we've been given and what he has uh, put us in charge of, what we're accountable for to him. The fact is, our our money is always going to go, it will always go wherever your treasure is. That's biblical. Jesus said that this is is how it works, that where your heart is, that's that's where your treasure is. Sixth and finally, the people commit to making corporate worship a priority in their lives. So he, he, it's kind of a summary statement here at the end of verse 39. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. That's kind of a general blanket statement, all-encompassing statement, because they know that there are gonna be some things that maybe they haven't exactly thought of, some things that you know, a need may arise that isn't covered in all of these things. So this is just kind of a general statement. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Of our God, here the people are committing to faithfully attending corporate public worship services, and of course they're not saying that that's the only time that you should worship, because our whole lives should be filled with worship. That's how their lives were filled as a result of this change that had occurred in them. So, yeah, they're they're committing to faithfully uh, and regularly attending church, basically, but temple, uh, the temple services Uh, in the New Testament. The church isn't a building. It's a people. In the Old Testament, God dwelled in the temple. He dwelled within uh, the temple. But in the New Testament, he dwells within his people. That's such a beautiful picture when you wrap your mind around it. And that's the only reason why any good fruit will ever be found in a person's life is because God is making his dwelling in their person. See, when we belong to God, change will happen. It must happen, and it keeps happening until the day he calls us home. That's the fruit that true faith will produce. If it stops happening, if we stop producing good fruit or what appears to be good fruit in our lives, guess what? We're just back to square one where we're examining ourselves, examining our motives, examining our actions. Why am I doing this? What am I doing? Am I doing it to please God or am I doing it just to look good, just because it's kind of the right thing to do? Examining ourselves, that's back to square one, when change stops or if change stops. And I hope, I hope that in my life, in my kids' lives, in my grandkids' lives, I hope that if good fruit ever stops becoming apparent, somebody pulls me aside or them aside or whoever and says, man, what's going on? Let's examine the evidence here. Let's examine, can you examine yourself for just one second here? What are your motives? I hope that somebody would love me enough to do that if it were to stop. But I'm constantly examining myself. myself Every week I examine myself. And, and this week, as I did that, I had such a burden for what we've been studying and what, we're gonna, and what we were going to study today. Because really, this is the stuff that uh, was really my passion when I got into ministry to begin with. This whole process of transformation, this whole change that should be taking place in the lives of God's people because we've all seen it. As we've studied the past couple of weeks, we've all seen our nation just sliding further and further away from God. And it's something that's been going on for a long time and it's got to stop. It's got to stop. But it's not something that we can just say, okay, everybody stop. It's something where God's people are going to have to do something. And there are two things, there are two things that are going to cause a reversal of this of this trend. Uh, two things will cause uh, a revival in this nation. The first thing is persecution. If you look at countries where there's been intense persecution, man, they have a revival like we cannot even imagine. Because when your life is on the line, you better be for reals. You better be for reals. So that's, that's the first option, persecution. The second is that God's people, we, turn from our idols and commit to living out our faith wholeheartedly and without compromise. To be completely transformed in our lives. See, we'll start cleaning up the trash in our lives by going to the source, throwing away the idols, the trash that have polluted our hearts and that have just been obstacles, like an obstacle course in our lives that we've brought on ourselves. And that'll be evidenced by our confessing and turning away from our sins and giving God first priority, not just on Sundays, but every day. And not just in one aspect of our lives, but in every aspect of our lives. In other words, we have to commit to being a living sacrifice to God, seeking daily transformation by renewing our minds rather than being conformed to the ways of the world and accepting the world's value system. We have to be transformed so that we are not only embracing God's value system, but living it out and keeping God in his rightful place. And so this is my prayer, that we will commit to being renewed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and that the result will be will bear good fruit as evidence of our ever learning and ever increasing faithfulness to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this issue is such a heavy burden on my heart. And I am so concerned about our country and the people in our country who have turned away from you and the people who think that they are embracing your value system when they are embracing the world's value system. Oh God, that you would put this burden that I have on my heart an equal burden on theirs to turn from their sin. God, I pray that you would use us. Yes, we are dirty. Yes, we are fallible but you can use us because nothing's impossible with you. You can use us to turn this nation around. And it starts with us living out our faith, living boldly in the light of values that don't line up with yours at all. God, give us the boldness. Give us the courage. and Give us the strength and determination to live for you. That we would see transformation in every aspect of our lives. God, we pray for the future of this nation. We know that you are in control, and Lord, you are sovereign, and that if you decided that now is the time you could unleash your wrath on this country, and we would fully deserve it. But Lord, we ask that you would be gracious. You are a merciful, gracious God. And so we ask, Lord, that you would stir up the hearts of the people in this country that we would turn from our evil ways and return to you. For your glory. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org We are a listener-supported ministry.